Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's Labor Day weekend, so we're bringing you a re-air of one of our favorite programs of 2016. In two weeks, the Milwaukee Art Museum will present one of the best shows of 2016, a retrospective of Anthony Hernandez. It was curated by San Francisco Museum of Modern Art curator Aaron O'Toole. It was Hernandez's first ever retrospective. His photographs have consistently looked at parts of America, especially parts of Los Angeles, that hide in plain sight. The catalog was one of last year's best books, especially for the introduction by Robert Adams and a conversation between Hernandez and Louis Baltz. Milwaukee's presentation of the exhibition opens in a couple weeks on September 15th, and it'll remain on view through January 1st, 2018. So often the shows that travel are the blue chippers, so good on Milwaukee and its photography curator, Lisa Sutcliffe, for getting this done. Anthony Hernandez, after the break. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velazquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Led by the Getty, Pacific Standard Time LALA is a far-reaching and ambitious exploration of Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles. At the Getty Center, related musical performances start Saturday, September 23rd at 7 p.m. with Sonorama, Latin American Composers in Hollywood, Mexican Institute of Sound, with special guests Sergio Mendoza and a band led by L.A.'s own Alberto Lopez, play tribute to Lalo Schifarin, Maria Griebert, and other artists in the museum courtyard. Learn more about this show and other upcoming performances at getty.edu slash 360. The critically acclaimed exhibition Robert Rauschenberg, Among Friends, is now in its final weeks at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. It closes on September 17th. An exploration of Rauschenberg's wide-ranging career and commitment to openness and collaboration, it features over 250 works, including contributions from collaborators such as Merce Cunningham, Jasper Johns, and Tricia Brown. And MoMA's open till 9 p.m. on Fridays and Saturdays until December 30th, so you have more time to see it all. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org. And we're back. Anthony Hernandez, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with a story that curator Erin O'Toole tells in her catalog essay. And it's a story of your going to the Norton Simon Museum in 1970 with a box full of pictures. Could you, could you, could you tell that story? <laughs> yeah, well, somebody, you know, I, I, I had a few back then, uh, not many, but a, a few 11 by 14, I believe, prints. Maybe they were 8 by 10s. Anyway, somebody said to me, you know, there's a curator at the Passy Museum for photography, I think, and you should go down there. So I just went down there one day, not knowing I should call ahead to get an appointment. or I just went there, and I just walked into the office downstairs, and I said, is 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 there a curator here for photography? He said, yes, there is. I said, well, can I show them these prints? <laughs> and they said, well, do you have an appointment? I said, no, I don't. So, but I had this box, a 11 by 14 box of prints or something. And I just, so this, 
the receptionist was just a little taken back. She said, well, you just sit down for a minute. And I gave her the box and I was waiting and she took the box and went. And after a few minutes, Fred Parker came out, who was a curator there and said, and Fred's a big guy too. And he came out and said, who are you? And I said, well, I introduced myself and I said, and he introduced himself. And he said, I just finished putting the show California Photographers Together and I'm going to put you in it. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. But uh, and so I went back to his office and we started chatting and he was going through the pictures and he said, okay, well, I, I'm making a selection. And so it all happened very, very quickly. And But I was so not knowing how these things worked he never told me that there was actually going to be an opening for this show. So I missed the opening. <laughs> I wasn't even there. <laughs> but I'll tell you another end story that maybe I forgot to mention to other people that I was at a little Mexican joint at night uh, near Sunset on Alvarado to have uh, something to eat. And we're talking about like 11 o'clock at night or something like that. I'm there with a friend of mine, and these two women are sitting waiting to get some food. This is like, you know, a, a typical outside place where people are standing around, not inside a restaurant, just like one of these, then a little fast food Mexican place. And these two women are there, and I'm start chatting with these two women, and they had just come from that opening. And I said, really? I didn't. Then I found out there was an opening, and I said, well, uh, I was in it. <laughs> And then one of them said, well, which, which pictures were they? And described the pictures. And he said, I remember those pictures. Well, I, anyway, to cut a long story short, that woman, that young woman I was talking to, we became involved. Girlfriend, boyfriend. <laughs> Started from there. So, you know, it's it just uh, crazy. But anyway, that's how it happened with Fred. And um, he was very enthusiastic because I, I didn't know anybody at all in that California photographers, not anyone at all. And so then he had this idea, I guess, that he wanted to do this show, Crowded Vacancy with Louis Balls and Terry Wild, who I didn't know, but he invited us all for his house for dinner and that's how we could meet. And uh, the idea was their pictures with my pictures. When I saw their pictures, I said, well, maybe you need another person like, you know, the pictures you guys are making, these kind of very minimal, for, formal kind of pictures. And they said, no, no, we need your pictures of figures, you know, on the beach and the street scenes in downtown. And Lewis, who I just met then, uh, said he really, really liked the pictures and he really thought it would it would be a better show, a greater show, a stronger show with my pictures in there. So they talked me into it <laughs> so, to, be, to participate, which I didn't think, I, you know, at first, I didn't think that it was going to work. But anyway, it, it did work, and it, it did happen. They did publish a small catalog called The Crowd of Vacancy, and it got a lot of attention. And that just started in terms of meeting people and starting to be in these you know, group shows, and things started happening from that. So I think uh, Fred Parker was the first person who, you know, there's always somebody behind people that are helping you along the way. And even though you know, you're out there alone making the pictures, there's always somebody in the background. And Fred was the first one. Well, let me start with the, with the beach pictures because they are, as we're talking about, among the earliest works in, in the show at SF MoMA. And they are 
often discussed in terms of Edward Weston's famous Nude on Sand, Oceana from 1936, and we'll have an image of that on manpodcast.com, of course. So the Weston features a lithe, leggy, free, kind of hedonistic, splayed female nude on a pristine, perfect beach. And your beach pictures are not that. And I think people have tended to gravitate toward talking to you about the figures in your beach pictures. They're often clothed, exhausted, sleeping, and not pointedly not luxuriating. All, all true, of course. But I wanted to ask you about the surface of the sand in those pictures. The surface of the sand in your beach pictures is the way the sand looks like at 4 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon after all of Venice and Santa Monica has has traipsed all over it. Was it important to you from the start that the beach looked used, not 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 pristine and pretty like the Weston Beach? I never thought of it that way. I mean, Weston was the first, you know, person that uh, I mean, really that's how that's actually I think how, how I'm here because a flame of recognition just like blew me away and I'd say I want to make pictures like that, meaning I want to make pictures that are that Basically, that vision, I mean, he, I think of him as a visionary. And so those pictures, that clarity of vision, I said, I want to make pictures like that. But the beach pictures, of the actual photographs of the sand itself, the reason that I started those beach pictures is because Long Beach, where I, where I first started, I used to go there as a kid. In other words, as the, and go in the water and just hang out there with my parents and all that. So I went back there and I started making these pictures of people usually alone on the beach. But it was because of Weston's, the, that reference to the sand, even though his pictures of sand, were, it's quite different, but just to reproduce sand in a black and white print, that I was very drawn to that. And that's really w what it was. It was just, yes, I love those Weston pictures, but not just the sand pictures. I mean, not, not the, just the figures. But, you know, all of the objects and, and landscapes, you know, lots of pictures. So you were conscious about getting surface and texture into the work, but not so much as a counterpoint to Weston. Right, right. Mm, that's interesting. Um, we'll come back to surface and texture, in, I think, again and again as we, <laughs> as we talk. It's one of my favorite things about the work. So like you said, concurrently, you're making a lot of street photography not just in Los Angeles, but wherever you can manage to travel in your in your young, early career period. This is uh, sixty nine seventy. It's kind of closer to the end of American street photography than to the beginning. And your street pictures are full of people who are alone, um, or, or or who are separated from what's going on around them, which I think really sets them apart from a lot of American street photography. Do you remember thinking through back then what made a good street picture for you what and, and and whether or not that was different for what made a good street picture for a New Yorker or somebody else? You know, when I started photographing L.A. and, and Aaron refers to it in her text that I was drawn to downtown L.A. because I grew up as a kid just knowing downtown L.A., going, hanging out there, going to the pictures and my, me and my cousins just, you know, going through all the streets just, and that was an exciting time and place. So when I started thinking about, oh, where, where do I take pictures? I, L.A. was was the first place to start without thinking about the tradition of street photographs, you know, from New York or anybody, anywhere else. And so that be very 
beginning was just, oh, I'm, I'm photographing a place I know uh, very, you know, where I grew up and, and all, all that. And But when I started later finding work, you know, whether it's Robert Frank and, you know, the tradition, so to speak, I realized that that dan- I call it a dance, that dance walking through a crowded street in downtown L.A., like a crowded street in you know, Broadway, New York, that I wanted to focus. And it would be like a, a narrow focus because I always thought of it as a very uh, all these hard surfaces, hard light. Maybe uh, some of the people, it's kind of hard. Just what are you doing down there, you know, shopping or whatever? And. And so I was thinking, I'm, I want to make these pictures that are, that are all, so to speak, the same or have that same weight. And, and that, that's one part. The, the, the other part of like walking through and, and having this dance is that whatever you're going to try to photograph, it's photographing it in such a fluid and fast way that you can't think. You know, you're only... It's just all intuitive. So your question about the, the people being isolated, well, whatever I'm drawn to, it doesn't just have to do with these pictures, but later pictures as well. I can't put my finger on that in terms of what drew me this way and, and those kinds of moments. But that was all what I was drawn to. Uh, it's all uh, in one piece, you might say. So that's just something I started uh, doing. And I think of myself in terms of the street is there, there's so much going on, you know, that it's, I mean, you don't stop and think, oh, I'm going to make this kind of picture, that kind of, you're just making pictures, trying to make pictures. And some of them are successful and some of them aren't. But that intuitive thing, there's, there's, uh, I'm drawn to, in, in terms of my eye, so to speak, so many things that you can't stop to try to figure that out. You're just part of that movement. And I loved that dance, so to speak, walking through. And, you know, it, it, it was just a very intuitive, fluid way of working. But the, the, the moments of maybe these private moments that maybe I was experiencing as I approached somebody, even, even though I was going to pass them very quickly, that's what I was drawn to and that's what I photographed. One of the places you made street pictures was in Vietnam, specifically, for example, Saigon. You went to Vietnam in 1972, which was just five years after you'd been there as an army medic during the Vietnam War. I I think that in the last decade or two, it has become routine for Americans who fought in Vietnam to go back, kind of maybe so common in the last half generation that we don't really think about it. But in 1972, it most certainly was not. Um, American soldiers just, I mean, you know, just didn't happen. So why did you go back? One of the reasons I went back is I had never been to Saigon. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was all over Central Highlands and all the way up from Da Nang and, and different places, but I never got to Saigon. And, and so when this grant, uh, the Ferguson grant, somebody told me about the Sherry Heiser years ago, told me about, oh, Friends Photography are going to start to give out this grant, the Ferguson grant. You should apply for it. I said, oh, and, you know, I started thinking, if I got a grant, where would I go? And I said, oh, I'd like to go back to photograph in Saigon because I had never been there and I wanted to just 
check it out, so to speak. So I did. I mean, I did uh, find out about it. Actually, I met Ansel Adams. It's kind of like that story of Fred Parker. I just, I was on my way to San Francisco, and I just showed up at Ansel Adams' house. You know, I asked the mailman, where does Ansel Adams live? He told me, and I just knocked on his door and had in my box of prints. <laughs> to show Ansel? Yeah, and I said, I hear that you're, you're going to start this grant. I wanted to find out about it. And he said, well, I'll let you know about it. We're setting it up. And he you know, gave me a tour of his dark room, and he looked at my prints. And and he was very nice, and he probably thought, well, who is this person? But, you know, that's just what I did. And I ended up getting the first Ferguson grant, which I was really surprised at, you know, then figuring out what the Friends Photography and Insel Adams, that, all that kind of work was. I thought, wow, to get this from them. And then uh, that Fred had actually uh, moved on from the, the curator at Pasadena to being the curator, uh, director of the French photography. So it all kind of fell in place, so to speak. And I did go back to Vietnam and, re and Fred raised some other money for me because it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for the grant. I mean, and I ended up spending two months, I believe, in um, Saigon photographing. Now, just to let you know, uh, I am going to uh, publish a, another book. of. I've edited it down to the, the best pictures, uh, which I have about 26 pictures from Saigon, uh, which I'm going to be doing um, but as soon as I've finished all this, this other stuff. And I'm very happy about that. And it was really an, a, a great time for me to be there. And the interesting thing about being in, in Saigon which I, I, I'll tell you now, is I, when I got there, I, I, mean, I didn't know anybody. And, and I was in a, a restaurant, air-conditioned little place because it was, it was hot. And somebody came up to me and said, you must be Anthony Hernandez. I said, I said yeah, who are you? Yeah, I am. Who are you? He said, we, we've been waiting for you. And we. And so what it was is it was a group of all the, the photojournalists that you know, are in Saigon you know, hanging out. And so I was asked to go and join them in another table in this restaurant. And I did, you know, I met all the people from, you you know, UPI, I mean, all, all the, you know, services, new services, a, a lot of them were there, not just photographers, but journalists. And uh, they asked me, well, who are you working for? I said, I'm not working for anybody. <laughs> that was a complete surprise. You would have seen the faces of these people. They just said, you're not working for anybody. You know, I said, I just, and I explained I'd been there as a medic and I came back to, as an artist to photograph. And they were just blown away, you know. But anyway, I, I did meet them and I, I did go to, um, you know, have some parties that they were throwing for different events in, while I was in Saigon. But what really happened, and this was the interesting part, is that some of these photographers I had met, I, I said, well, how long have you been here off and on? And some of these guys had been there for a long time doing stories and going back to the States, coming back. But they had never photographed in Saigon. They had never thought about photographing on their own. And so what happened after I was there photographing, I knew, uh, like, uh, what's his name? David Burnett uh, was there. I bumped into him on the street. And he was trying to photograph <laughs> because he had, he had realized when I had mentioned all that, he said, you know, I never thought about that. So then he knew he was going to be leaving soon and he may not be coming back, that he started 
trying to photograph in in Saigon, and I bumped into him. <laughs> I thought that was wild. That was also a point, by the way, when I met all these guys, I thought, you know, wow, I guess that's a career, you know, being a photojournalist. But I realized that wasn't a career that I, I was going to follow, you know, but it was interesting just to, to uh, come up against that kind of world, you know, and mine was a very different world. Well, at, least, at that point, in other words, what I thought I was trying to do. In the late 70s, you moved away from street photography and into a series of work called Automotive Landscapes. It kind of shows the forgotten places necessary to Los Angeles car culture, indeed American car culture, and kind of hints at the planning decisions and, and structure of American post-war society that car culture enabled. I want to talk about some of those pictures, but before we do, there is a picture in the book, in the SF MoMA catalog, of you in the automotive landscapes period. It's a, um, it's a Grant Rusk picture of you standing on top of a VW bus with a platform and what looks too small to be a 4x5 camera, but might be. No, it's a 5x7. Oh, it's a 5x7. Yeah. Okay. It's just that the scale of everything else in the yeah, picture is. Yeah, right. <laughs> looks tiny. So in the context of what you were saying about having met Ansel Adams a few moments ago, Ansel famously built a rig on top of a station wagon from which he often took pictures, which was Ansel Adams's way of, it was the closest Ansel Adams really ever got to acknowledging Carlton Watkins, the, the California pioneer who took pictures from on top of a wagon. Did, did you build a platform on top of your VW bus just because that made sense pictorially, or did you get the idea from Ansel Adams? No, I didn't get the idea from Ansel Adams. I, there are certain automotive kind of spaces, you might say, that I thought, oh, I, I need to get up high, you know, and, and that's why the VW bus, which I had, uh, I could put this platform on there and start photographing from that. But no, I, I didn't think about, you know, Ansel Adams on his, even though I knew he made pictures that way, it wasn't you know, a conscious thing, oh, I, I want to do it because of, of that, you know past past and those people have been using it that way it just meant that i could make uh, different pictures of, and not just on the you know on the ground but on, on top of the of the of the bus right but i should tell you that actually the automotive landscapes really started in 1976 60 76 77 so what i did is i started uh, when i stopped photographing people and the last photographs of people is 35 millimeter black and white is in new orleans 1976 which is in the book, uh, of, actually, and it's a portrait of a, of a man in New Orleans number two. That is the last 35-millimeter picture I made. And that, by the way, just to, technically, it's an interesting thing. That picture is shot, and there are only a few in the book, it was shot with a 50-millimeter lens, which I borrowed from Louis Baltz because I, I didn't own one, and I wanted to make a different kind of picture. So he let me as 50-millimeter for a while. And uh, the the fifty there are a few that are in the book are shot with his fifty millimeter lens and you know and, and then I stopped using it but so that's the last picture I made and then when I was in L A I realized that I, that I wanted to make other pictures but but I I still have my thirty five millimeter camera and I started I just started thinking about what what really what was L A and L A was the automobile and that's how I got this idea oh, I'm going to photograph these. I call automotive landscapes, but I started with 35 millimeter and it's moving street, another street kind of photograph because I'm actually just walking and photographing these, these scenes. 
the photographs that are in the book are from the 5x7, but the reason I switched is because I was not happy with the print. In other words, I wanted to make larger prints, and then I got an NEA Grant 78, so I bought the 5x7 Deerdorf, and it's the same kind of format for the 35 millimeter that I, that I already made, and I wanted to continue that format. So then I switched to the 5x7 uh, to continue the, autom the automotive uh, landscapes. And that's how that happened, you know, switching from the, but it started from 35 millimeter black and white and then switched to the 5x7 black and white. And then from then on, on I, you know, I just made those different bodies of work from 5x7 black and white work and then stop, that stopped in 83, I believe, yeah, 83. So that's just the chronology, you might say. For the automotive landscapes pictures, this is another place where my eyes go right to the ground, to the surface of, of the ground. And the surfaces are tremendous. I mean, they're full of lines and blots and drips. And, you know, I mean, I just kind of look at them and I think, oh, my God, what? Think of all the stuff leaking out of all those cars for all those years. Oh, yeah. You know, I have to. Now that you, you just tr triggered something I should mention to, to you, because I think uh, Aaron mentions it so if we if we go back to the very beginning the very very beginning of uh, what i call it uh, of my first gesture the very first pictures i tried to make with a uh, little hawkeye family camera was of an empty lot next to a car repair place and they th were throwing out all these parts or you know discarded parts and it's just some weeds and mostly dirt empty small lot which I was uh, walking past on my way from school, high school back to home. And that's what I chose to photograph the very first. And when the question you asked before about, I was saying that I, I, I don't know how you can, what drew me to the, the certain kind of street picture, 35 miller people, what, this was the very first thing. And what drew me to that, that kind of scene of that empty lot that I still can't put a finger on, obviously, but that was the very first thing. I remember looking at that in a very serious way. It's like, oh, with that little Hawkeye looking down like like a, you know, a hostile, I mean, excuse me, uh, like a Rolleiflex looking down into it, saying, okay, take a picture here on the outside, move in, take another picture there, move in a little further, take another picture there, another, move in a little further and take another one. Well, that way of working, basically, I continued later, you know, not the street photographs, but everything else I did after the, the photographs of people in that way. In the, in the automotive landscapes pictures, are you thinking about things like contemporary painting, like Cy Twombly or, or drips from, say, Pollock or minimalism? Because a lot of, I mean, I, I, Louis Baltz was a friend of yours. He made several bodies of work that were about engaging with contemporary sculpture and painting. And when I look at these pictures, I see, I see lots of art history in them. I guess for me, I was thinking of I, I'm, these pictures. I, I don't think about, uh, and I obviously wasn't thinking about painting or Saitwami or minimalism things like that. I, I would, you know, to me, I was thinking this is a real LA or parts of LA that are, that are uh, everywhere, you know, but in other words, it's, it's almost like 
you don't notice this in, really because it's just it's everywhere the, the automotive culture so to speak my term automotive landscapes but i was thinking of these more as um and that's why i like that title automotive landscapes because i wanted to make landscapes but about something you know not just pure landscape so that that's that's where it comes from it, for these that body of work my guest is anthony hernandez we'll be right back after a break This fall, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Radical Women, Latin American Art 1960 to 1985, including more than 280 works created by 120 artists and collectives from 15 different countries. The exhibition highlights the contributions of Latin American, Latina, and Chicana women to contemporary art. Radical Women is part of Pacific Standard Time LALA, an initiative of the Getty with arts institutions across Southern California exploring Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles. Radical Women, Latin American Art, 1960 to 1985, on view September 15th to December 31st at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Support comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Blue Black, curated by influential American artist Glenn Ligon. Inspired by his experience of the Pulitzer's monumental Ellsworth Kelly wall sculpture, Blue Black, Ligon enlists the colors blue and black to pose timely and nuanced questions, touching upon notions of language, identity, and perception. The exhibition brings together a diverse selection of more than 50 works, ranging from abstraction to portraiture, from Norman Lewis to Andy Warhol, and including well-known works by Ligon. Blue Black is on view now through October 7th. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Nasher Sculpture Center presents Ronnie Horn on view through August 20th. See Horn's large-scale cylindrical glass sculptures that are infused with light, weight, and presence. The exhibition, the first U.S. museum presentation of her work since 2010 and her first to focus specifically on cast glass sculpture, highlights the artist's inspiration from nature and language, as well as the reflective and translucent qualities of glass. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. And now back to my conversation with Anthony Hernandez. So as we get into the late 70s and early 80s, the new topographic style picture making, Hank Wessel, Louis Baltz, Joe Deal, is all well established and they're all working in a manner that might be described as spotlighting the way in which the land particularly, but not, not, in, not only in the West, was misused. And your work of the same time has a very different and much more acute emotional power. And it might be considered as looking at how humans were, I don't know, this isn't a very good word, but misused by a broader society. And I, I think the public transit area's work seems like a really key pivot point. Was that an extension of the automotive landscapes work or was that a conscious bridge towards something else? No, it was uh, things um, when I started uh, or was doing the automotive things. So, I, you know, when I was doing all that, walking and then photographing 35 millimeter and then going for the 5 by 7 on the periphery of my eye, I was realizing there were, uh, in that landscapes of automotive pictures I was trying to make, I did notice, you know, people waiting for the bus. And I started 
thinking, well, I should look at that as well. And so it, one thing le kind of just led into another. And was, see, the automotive pictures really led me into looking at these people who didn't have cars were waiting for the bus. You know, yeah, and these so are, that... these are people who are sitting on on benches, not a tree in sight or shade in sight ever. I think in in like almost any of them, and they're waiting next to big open multi lane massive roads. The feeling in these pictures is that oh my goodness, those roads are very large and these people are very small, and how disjunctive and uncomfortable that is. And and it's the waiting. And you the know, waiting, yeah. yes, and the waiting, waiting in the hot sun. Right, exactly. So, but those pictures, to me, uh, when I started public transit area no, number 45, that is actually the very first picture I made. It's not. It's very close to where I live, an apartment in, in, in L.A., third in Vermont. And so that's the very first picture I made. And th when I made that picture, I started thinking, I mean, well, this is going to be great because – uh, what I, I what occurred to me is that here it is, L.A. I'm going to photograph these bus stop pictures, and it's going to be the same picture, but all over L.A. And they're all going to be the same picture, but all different. So that really excited me, you know. And that's what happened, you know. I just started, uh, and those are the uh, in terms of bodies of work. I made more of those pictures than, than, than any other you know, bodies of work with the 5 by 7 I mean. That, that idea does kind of align them with new topographics photography in a way because those are the same buildings, just different all over the place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And But I also like the fact that I created from the 5 by 7 work, and I mentioned it, that, that if I'm walking down the street and I stop to make a picture of a bus stop, I could make that picture in one minute and then just, just keep going. Worked that well. I mean, I worked at it so well that it was very fluid, and I loved doing it that way. And it just felt just just right. So I never waited for anything to happen. I was just constantly moving, photographing as I went along, and that's the way it felt like. The, the dance was a slower dance, you might say now, you know, but it was still a dance, you know, a slow dance, not a fast one. So I, I it kind of integrated that other way of working. The body of work that comes next-ish is public use areas, which are pictures. So for, this is going to sound like a silly thing to say, but for people who haven't walked around downtown L.A., because I assume no one walks around downtown L.A., the buildings, uh, the skyscrapers in downtown L.A. aren't gridded into the street the way they are in New York. You know, they're, they're set back and elevated or somehow separated from the life of the city by an artificial post-brutalist, difficult-to-navigate, stand-in-sit-on... Surfaces, yeah. Yeah, it's just... It, it, I mean, they're these weird in-between landscapes. What got you interested in those? Because they do seem to follow logically after the bus stop pictures, but in a way they don't in the sense that, you know, kind of Joe Schmo is sitting in the bus stops, whereas it's a very different moneyed landscape you're photographing in the public use areas. Well, to me, the, the, the bus stop pictures led, I mean, I started making these because what it is, it's how people spend their time. For instance, this is all during like lunch hours and where do you go if you want to go have a sandwich but sit outside or read a book? or And what? how are you going to use that landscape? Because you're going to place yourself wherever you feel comfortable or, or whatever, you know, whatever, wherever the place is. 
even though they might be a, a bench that's actually set up that way for you. And so I was really interested in, uh, again, the backdrop uh, of all the bus stop pictures of these, the street and all the traffic and all that r repetitive. And this is the same way, uh, looking at that backdrop of L.A. And, but but you're, you're right, it's these, these places where it's set back, it's elevated, there's a figure and you're, you're in this big open space. And by the way, just to let you know, these pictures, when I made them, like, you know, late 70s, early 80s, places now I couldn't photograph because, you, they, you know, security would come out and say, you can't have a, a tripod out, you know, like that. So that, that's an interesting thing to think about now. I mean, you could photograph them a 35 millimeter, you know, in, in other words, no tripods. But I, I wanted to look around it just to see where people, you know, where they were actually going to be doing whatever they were doing. Why was that a place you ended up looking around? Because it also uh, took me to places in, in L.A. that I had never been. In other words, century, <laughs> through city, I mean, through part, parts of uh, like Century City, and uh, and again, I'm walking uh, with my camera through all these spaces I've never been, and then I come upon somebody reading a book, you know, and I make a picture very quickly, and then just keep walking, you know, and so it's that thing of experiencing experiencing the place actually where they're experiencing whatever they're doing there, you know, eating a sandwich or reading or sleeping. I have other, I have, by the way, just to mention that I have more negatives from all these bodies of work that I haven't printed still. So it's, there are other pictures that are going to come up later, but you know, it's an interesting thing because I just didn't have, I mean, I made a lot of work and uh, some of the work sometimes if I, maybe whether I overexposed the film slightly and overdeveloped it. Well, some of the niggas are, are very dense. Well, I can now digitally, I can print something that I, I couldn't maybe print back then. And so that's another way of having the, these pictures will have another life, you know, later. And technically, I mean, you know, digitally. So that's exciting, actually. And so I have a lot of work, I must say. You mentioned a picture of a woman reading a book or a person reading a book. My favorite of this whole group, and maybe my favorite of all your work, is Public Use Areas number 25. We'll have it on manpodcast.com. You said that you moved through these areas quickly, stopped, made a picture quickly, and moved on. There is nothing quick about Public Use Areas number 25. It is, an historian would be tempted to say, this is the closest you get to referring to the Julian Shulman style consideration of Los Angeles architecture and Western modernism. It is rectilinear, it is precisionist, it is acute, it is almost inhuman in the way that the landscape makes the human exist within it. And it strikes me as really different from all the other public use areas pictures, which I which I love, but this one is I mean these 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 rhododendrons and pine trees up behind her are just funny. I mean it's 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 a it's a picture with a sense of humor while it's being brutal. So did some of these take a little longer? <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm really not exaggerating. When I didn't, in other words, it's like a feeling. I said, oh, I'm moving, and everything has to uh, just be like coming up to a bus stop and making that picture. Coming up to that woman reading a book, it happened as quickly as I could make the picture. It is not what you think. It's uh, I'm there for you know forever trying to do everything. No, no, it's as quick as I made a bus stop picture. I made that picture exactly the same way. It hadn't changed. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that whole page 
of page 100 and 101, then you have number 25, you have number 71, and you have number 12, uh, 17, all in the same, exactly the same way. I see it, whoa, take it and move on. <laughs> and I, I'm, I mean, that's the part of the, you know, I, I use the word and I mentioned it to Aaron and I mentioned to other people who've been interviewing. A lot of this stuff in later work, you know, it's, it's like a challenge, you know, and you gotta uh, work it out, so, so to speak. I worked it out with the bus stop pictures, and and then that just led into these pictures. I mean, before the I mean, then the automotives led into the bus stops, and the bus stops led into the, this area. These kind of pictures, so they were kind of all overlapping, you know. And and but I was still working all in the same fluid way, which I really really enjoyed actually. So it was like the, it was like if you think about it, even the 35 millimeter work. I mean, this is just a general idea. Is like the. It's almost like you have a camera. You're in front of people, whatever. But it's almost like you don't have a camera anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's like you disappear. Well, that idea, and you know, we can. It's to be more specific. You, know, you can think about certain kinds of pictures where you're standing in front of somebody, but they're not aware that you're actually you're not there. And, and I'll give you an example, uh, which is one of my favorite pictures, an early 35 millimeter picture. But it it, it applies to the five by seven work as well, not just that that picture. It's Persian Square, 1971. I mean, and that I that, that was also shot with Lewis's 50. The public use area pictures date to the very early 1980s. The next couple bodies of work I'd like to talk about come after that. The Rodeo Drive pictures, which are color pictures of just the most vapid people you can imagine in and around Rodeo Drive, and the landscapes for the homeless pictures. Did the landscapes for the homeless pictures have to come after the Rodeo Drive pictures? The first color work of Rodeo is also the last pictures of people. And I, I did get uh, an artist in residency uh, at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. And I was going there in 86, and I thought I was going to photograph people in the strip. But I ended up, I ended up photographing these uh, shooting site areas near the Sunrise Mountain. People go out and target practice, and I was interested in all the stuff on the ground. And I started photographing that. That goes back to like that first gesture of me photographing all these scattered automobile parts in this empty lot. So this is a big empty desert areas that I was photographing. And that that led, believe it or not, those shooting site pictures in Vegas led to the homeless pictures. And the reason I say that is because I was out there and sometimes if, if you're not familiar with Vegas, the desert, it can really blow sometimes three days in, in a row that it's so windy. And I was staying in a motel and I got so frustrated one day, I said, well, I got to do something. So I walked from my hotel and ended up uh, walking past a freeway bridge and, and I saw a little path along the side of that bushes and I said, what's back there? And, and I just went back in there and there were, uh, it was like a little homeless some homeless people had been there. There was blankets and, uh, you know, food cartons and cigarettes. And I made a few, few pictures of that. And then I continued all the shooting site pictures. So two years later, after I finished another more pictures in, in, in Angeles National Forest of all the shooting site pictures, going through all that film, I found these few pictures. And, and they weren't good. I mean, they were, they were just, oh, I said, oh, the, oh that landscapes. I mean homeless a, a site. 
And then I got the idea then. I said, oh, I should do that now here in L.A. because there's, you know, there are so many. Now that it began then, homeless people. So that's how that happened, actually. Just that led into the other when I found that I had made a few pictures that I had forgotten about, you know. And that's how that, uh, if that gives you some kind of clue and how I started the landscapes for the homeless. So it, it really is really, you know, one thing falling in place with the other, you know. But the Rodeo Drive, I was very happy to make that work. And, and even though it's the last body of work I made of, of people. Robert Adams's phrase for those pictures is that they are pictures of the negligent wealthy, which is an astonish. I mean, you know, Bob Adams can really write. So that's, 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 I mean, it's just a terrific phrase. Bob also has a great phrase on the landscapes for the homeless pictures. He, he, he says that he reads the four as accusatory landscapes for the homeless, as if that has been the landscape that has been acted upon humans by, well, people not thinking about either those humans or how they're, they're using the land. Is he right? I mean, did you kind of intend the, the title for the series to be accusatory? I think I was, uh, I would be a little more generous. I wanted to make some, uh, I mean, when I start thinking about it, uh, yes, I was, I was thinking, oh, these are going to be uh, more of a, uh, a landscape kind of picture or pictures of, you know, homeless sites because they're, you know, they're all over in parks and along the freeway, no man's land, so to speak empty lots. And I started thinking, well, you know, I'm going to make these pictures, but who am I making them for? You know? And I'm saying, well, I'm making them for the people that are there. You know, I'm making them for, for the homeless. It's like my gift to show everybody that they have their own place and they, and, and this is, this is what it is, you know? But, and people showed some of these pictures before, but they, they put the title as, uh, landscapes of the homeless. You know, when when my title was landscapes for the homeless, you know. But anyway, that that's if, if that kind of clarifies anything for you about them. Uh, ha- happy I made them, and they they were probably the toughest pictures I made. Uh, you know, in, in terms of having to be c- uh, careful. They're pictures that almost require a museum career, in the sense that you know Beverly Hills collectors aren't likely to buy them. But institutional collectors will find a great deal to appreciate in them, from the formalism of them to themes that recur throughout the body of work. They're really yeah, they're tough um, pictures, right? Yeah, they're, they're tough but extraordinary pictures, and some of them are just achingly beautiful. To, uh, also, I mean, they're just really, really, really pretty. After you made the landscapes for the homeless pictures, you made a couple of series of pictures that include photographs where there are objects slammed up against the picture plane, whether it's like a chain link fence and whatever is blurry behind behind it, things like that. It, it looks in these pictures like you've gotten very interested at playing with the idea of the picture plane, at taking away depth of field. These are pictures that span a number of different series what changed in what you were looking to capture or show? Right. Well, the, those pictures, what's happening is that I was photographing a lot of these uh, buildings that were um, 
in, in downtown LA or around LA, downtown on the peripheries, th that were actually all, you know, closed up. And after a building is closed, after a while, uh, you know, homeless people are, are always trying to get in, breaking in, or using them, or, or, or around them, and nobody's going to bother them because these are these empty buildings. So that's a lot of these buildings are. That's what it is. They're they're just uh, uh, at that point not being used. And I I really was just photographing, you know, that kind of thing that was uh, uh, around me that was I was looking at. But I well, for instance, page the alley you know, 15. There are a number of pictures like that. That's not the only one, uh, which are really repetitive of. Uh, of looking at uh, reflections in, in um, glass. And yes, it's a very flat uh, field. And, and now it's repeated, by the way, in, in other pictures I've been making that aren't even in the book uh, now. And so that, that kind of picture, I was interested in, in uh, and I knew that, that all these much more precise formal qualities are, are absolutely falling in for these kinds of pictures. And again, to me, it's like I'm looking at a real detail of a building uh, and a number of buildings, but making a, a series of photographs that, that when you see more of them, it's actually even richer you know, than just seeing a couple. So when you see a group of them, it, things really start happening in terms of relationships you know, and, and playing off of each other. And I thought it was a very rich thing to do, and, and, not that many, and I hadn't seen people making those kinds of pictures, you know, so I enjoyed it uh, very much, you know, and, and again, it was having to walk and then find these buildings and then the right time. In other words, if I was walking by a building like that one right there, the LA 19, 1915, I mean, number 15, uh, I photographed that right then. I didn't come back and say, I'm going to photograph in a, in a better light or a different light. That's, I was going by there and I, I made that picture. And again, uh, not uh, in, in, a, in, a, in the same kind of way that in this fluid way. Whatever it was, that's what it was at that moment. You know. Two, two more things I want to ask about. One, it seems like in the last half decade or so, you've gotten more interested in beauty. Um, I'm thinking of a picture like Forever Number 74 from 2011, which is, um, I think, Erin O'Toole and, and tells us in her text. It's a picture that shows a green light reflected in an auto tunnel, I think, in downtown L.A., probably the tunnel that goes right under Mocha, maybe. Did you get more interested in beauty? Maybe I was more, in this very intuitive way, picking up all the you know color relationships and things like that. You know, and, and, and maybe it's more of a, you know, again, it's extending this, you might say, my own personal palette, you know, like that, for, especially, for, obviously, for color. I, I'm going to use this word, this word expression because, uh, you know, there's this, Kenneth Clark said that art is the highest form of human expression. And if we think about that, you know, it's a, it, it covers a, a it covers everything, actually, you know, and to me, because somebody asked me this before, I never thought of my own photographs, and I know there's that's the tradition, but I never thought of my own photographs, and I was never really happy with that term documentary, the start of that, and I always thought of it as a, really a form, I mean, 
art as as a form of expression. And I think I always thought that that's what I was trying to do, you know. And um, so when your question about the this now this uh, beauty, yes, but beauty in what, you know, beauty in something that people might think is not so beautiful. Why would you photograph that? For instance, the tree next to uh, 74, so forever 58, you know, that. And, and, and I'm, I'm aware of it because what I'm, what I'm doing is I'm controlling that because the relationship in that picture, what, what makes that happen is because I'm using a longer lens, which is bringing that background smack up against that tree and I'm very aware of that because of using, and that's what I've been doing more recently, uh, recently meaning in the last 10, 10, 15 years, of using longer lenses, and so compressing that space. And so, yes, I'm very much aware of what I'm doing, if that means being aware of making something like that tree picture very beautiful, the way it's presented. Yes, it's very, I'm, very, I'm very conscious of that. And creating that, you know. But on the other hand, people would say, yes, but it's a tree when there's that wire there so for homeless putting their plastic bags or whole food up and stuff like that. <laughs> and then all the carving the tree. But look at it. No, and the way the, the way you find the oranges and reds in the tree. and No, it's really seductive. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of the pictures, uh, which you, they, they go uh, in terms of the forever pictures, a lot of the pictures are made, yes, yeah, some of the at the edge of uh, downtown LA, but they go way over to um, the poor sections of LA, Compton, Watts, you know, uh, South Central. A lot of these pictures are made there, even though they're, you know, details of of uh, somebody being homeless, looking at what they're looking at. But again, I'm thinking of those places that places that nobody would think uh, there's anything to photograph in there uh, and it's pretty uh, grim or whatever. But to me, I think it, it's really a rich area. You just have to start, you have to find that richness, you know, and I think, I think that's what I've been doing. Speaking of richness, the body of work called Discarded is pictures about and of Southern California in the wake of the Great Recession housing developments that, that didn't happen or weren't finished or abandoned in the process after they'd already begun to be built, if you will. There are a lot of pictures in this series that, 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 that again, kind of get back into some of the new topographics area. But I, the, 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 the artist I see in these pictures a heck of a lot is John Davola. Discarded number 50 uh, of an interior with a broken window uh, or a broken sliding door, for example, or even discarded number 12 of these uh, dying or dead palm trees in a, in a vast landscape. Did you look at John's work or talk with John or was his work in your mind as you work on this stuff? No, I know John, and, but I, I, never, I never thought of, or I wasn't never thinking of John's pictures when I was making these kinds of pictures. And again, these pictures for me is going to places that I, that I had never been to before, even in Southern California. It was all new to me, and, and that's why I, I was in, in, enjoying, you know, going out to these places I'd never been to, to to see what's out there and to make these pictures. So, I mean, that's where I, that came from. And I know I, I, I never thought about uh, John's work in relationship to, to my work. No, not at all. 
Yeah, and there's a body. This is what you see here in the book is a part of it. There is a book published with 36 of these pictures for discarded, which was for the Eamon Carter Museum. Oh, yeah, the show last year. Yes, and the, and the book, the Israeli press did a book for that show, which is a, a large, beautiful book, actually. And uh, John Orbach wrote the introduction for that book. But it's a limited thing. It's only 200 copies printed, actually, that they have at the museum. And so there's... That, that's a very good, I mean, that covers 36 pictures, that, and, and I forget how many pictures are here in this book. But anyway, that's uh, that's the last body of work that I, I was working on up to the point of this uh, sh- you know, show. Finally, you make pictures of the undersides of freeways, the underparts of overpasses, a whole lot of them, of automotive infrastructure of all sorts. You even you know, by, by the early 2000s are making really formally elegant pictures of, of the undersides of freeways, a picture like Oakland number one. However, you, nowhere in this show is there something that has become sort of a ritual for Los Angeles-based artists over the last 50 years, and that is a picture of a freeway or an image of a freeway itself. Did you ever? Why or why not? I guess I haven't, but I, but the, all the pictures are, uh, under freeway bridges and all that, uh, yes, I have made a lot of them. And, and what it is, it's the light. You know, it's incredibly different light, and that's what drew me to make those pictures there. But yeah, no, I haven't made p- pictures of uh, freeways. A lot of other people have. You know, obviously, Catherine Opie made some really good pictures, and other people. But some of that, I imagine, is because you like to walk. And, and it's kind of hard to walk down the 10. But is there also a conceptual decision that that's just not for me? Or Oh, yeah. I mean, I would, I would say that if I was thinking, oh, I'm going to photograph freeways. No, I would say, you know, I guess I'd want something. And maybe that's kind of a little bit of a, if I can use the word, intimate. If those were intimate moments in the street photographs, black and white, and the landscapes of the homeless are these maybe intimate details of you know that experience. So maybe I'm drawn to that, and maybe that's why I would not do other things like that, you know. And the only thing that's maybe less intimate, but still in, in that direction, even is the discarded pictures as well. When you see the, more of them, you know, the, the references. Uh, so I guess I like that idea that something can be intimate and close and and I'm close, you know, and there. Anthony Hernandez, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.